0: Alright, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open up to 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week we saw Paul take another step in this long explanation, long defense of his ministry. Specifically, last week he engaged whether or not he needed letters of recommendation in order to minister to the people in Corinth. And I told you right up front that the obvious answer to that question is no, he does not need letters of recommendation. Uh, Even the question itself is absurd, uh, perhaps even offensive. I told you it would be like Asher asking me for credentials uh, when I pick him up from school to take him home, give him a ride home, which, by the way, he did at the end of the service. Um, He's a funny kid, and he listens. And so when uh, it was time to go home and he was getting ready to get in the car, he said, I'm going to need to see your credentials. I said, shut up, kid. (laughs) You wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me. Get in the car. Played out just as I suspected. Last week, um, as we walked through chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we saw seven big ideas. They'll be on the screen, I think. Number one, the Corinthians are Paul's letter. The the church in Corinth is his letter of recommendation. This letter is written on Paul's heart, he says. This letter is able to be read by all men. It's it's internal and external. Uh, This letter was written by Christ. He is the author. It was delivered by Paul. It was written by the Spirit, and it was written on human hearts. And last week for application, I try to encourage you, in whatever ministry you are involved with, uh, whatever that looks like, whether it's a pulpit ministry, a Sunday school ministry, uh, a, a parenting ministry, um, maybe within a friendship you are discipling someone, whatever ministry you are involved with, keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. Remember, God uses us to change people's lives. And remember, we can see him at work in the people we are serving. And along those lines, I invited you to reflect on the people who served you, uh, the people who invested in you, the people who taught God's word to you and showed you what it looks like to follow after Christ. Reflect on those people and thank God for them. Uh, As you can see their faces, maybe even uh, thank God for them. And if they're still alive, I encourage you to reach out to them and thank them uh, for showing Jesus to you, for teaching God's word to you. Uh, I hope that you'll continue to do that um, because it's those kind of encouraging words that keep uh, people going uh, in the work. You know what it means to receive an encouraging word like that in your own life. Um, Just recognize that other people feel the same way uh, when they are encouraged by you. Uh, So reflect on those who invested in you and then consider in whom you are investing right now. Um, Who are the ones that you are pouring into, serving, teaching, uh, loving, showing the way to follow Jesus? Because the truth is someone needs you. Someone needs you, like specifically you. In fact, think of it this way. You, you are uniquely equipped. You are uniquely positioned to really be helpful to someone in ways that no one else is. Like I think a lot of times we recognize people in our lives need something and we try to connect them with someone else to provide that. When the reality is, if those people are in our lives, we could be helpful to them. Don't like push that ministry off on someone else. Embrace that ministry as your ministry because your friends are your friends. The people who are in your orbit are in your orbit for a reason. And I'm saying you are there to serve them. You are there to teach them. You are there to preach to them. You are there to show them the way to follow Christ. And so do it. And this week, we're going to look at a text that I've already mentioned a few times over the last few weeks because here in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, Paul is going to answer the question that he raised back in chapter 2, verse 16, when he said, and who is adequate for these things? And again, what we're going to see is, we are. The answer to that question is, we are. But not by our own worth, not by our own ability, only by God's grace, only by his power, only by his presence. Today, we're going to get to look at that more closely. And it will be exactly what some of you need to hear today, especially in light of that last application last week that you are intended to be a minister. You are intended to be a servant of the new covenant in the lives of the people that you're around. And so as you consider your ministry, some of you are feeling inadequate, useless, worthless maybe even. And I hope you will see in the text today that that perspective actually qualifies you to be used extraordinarily by God. That, That that feeling of personal inadequacy is actually putting you in just the right place to be used extraordinarily by God Um, because he loves to fill up what is lacking. He loves to show off his strength in our weakness. And that's what we're going to see in the text today. Look at chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. This is God's word. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we confess our weakness today. We confess our innate inadequacy today. We confess our finite limitedness today. In ourselves, coming from ourselves, we have nothing. We are nothing. We admit that today, but you, you are not like us. You are strong, adequate, infinite, and you're with us. By grace, through faith in Jesus, you are with us and you are working in us and through us for the sake of your own name. So we trust that you will make us adequate, that you will make us strong as your power is perfected in our weakness. Lord, teach us today these things, these truths, and use us as servants of the new covenant by which the Spirit gives life. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll be able to work uh, kind of verse by verse through the text today as usual. And You notice in verse 4 he says, such confidence, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. What's he talking about confidence here? What kind of confidence is he talking about? There are kind of two opinions about this, two perspectives on it. One is perhaps he's reaching back, such confidence, reaching back to talk about the testimony of the Corinthian believers who have been changed by God's word through Paul's ministry like we looked at last week, evidence of his apostleship, such confidence we have because you are our letter of recommendation, written by Christ, right? You are our letter. so maybe that's the confidence. He's, he's reaching back to the work that God has done through his life in the church at Corinth. Or maybe he's reaching forward to what he's about to say in relation to his adequacy that comes not from himself, but from the Lord. Such confidence we have about our adequacy from God through Christ toward God. So maybe he's reaching back to what he just talked about. Maybe he's reaching forward to what he's about to talk about. It's probably actually best to include both of these things as part of one big argument for the legitimacy of Paul's ministry, his authority and his apostleship. If you were to read 2 Corinthians at a higher speed and a higher altitude, like would have been read initially, we're gonna see that this fits the overall argument perfectly. So really to narrow it down to, is he talking about something that he just said or something he's about to say Uh, really doesn't matter. He's doing both, he's reaching back and he's reaching forward. Defending his apostleship, defending his confidence to do the work that God has called him to do, and rooting that defense not in himself, but in God who provides every step of the way. It's probably worth noting at this point that Paul's defense of his ministry and his apostleship is not primarily self-defense. He's not trying to save his reputation in Corinth. He's not trying to uh, heal some kind of wounded pride or nurse an ego here. What's at stake is much bigger than Paul bigger than the Corinthian church even. The gospel is at stake as Paul talks about these things. The kingdom of God and the advance of light into the darkness is at stake. This is not about Paul's wounded pride. This is about the kingdom of God, and so he makes this defense. Before we move on to verse 5, let's acknowledge that there's a difference between the confidence that Paul is talking about here and confidence that marks the world around him. Paul will make clear in the text that this is not self-confidence that he has. Such confidence is not self-confidence. In fact, he does not even—he does it even in this part of the text. He says, such confidence we have through Christ. Not through ourselves, through Christ and toward God. He's going to make it even more clear in the next verse. And we must see that there is a sharp contrast between prideful, worldly confidence that says, look at me, look at me and what I'm able to do. There's a big difference between that and the humble kingdom confidence that says, look at him. Look at him and what he has done through a weakling like me. Who gets the attention in your life? Watch how Paul does this right off the bat in verse 5. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So in order to be absolutely clear that he's not talking about self-confidence Paul expresses right off the bat his personal inadequacy. The word for adequate in the text is interesting. It can also be translated as sufficient, fit, strong enough, worthy, or suitable. Paul uses this word in a different context earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 6, to describe the action that was taken by the majority of the church in disciplining that sinning brother. Do you remember that from a few months ago? He says sufficient or adequate. Or enough, for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It was enough. It was sufficient. It was adequate to accomplish the purpose, Paul says. He also used this word in 1 Corinthians to describe his own situation when the resurrected Lord appeared to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit... Not adequate, not strong enough, not qualified. I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Even there in 1 Corinthians, Paul acknowledges that he is not worthy on his own. It's a very similar message to our passage today. Paul is teaching us here that the basis for his adequacy, his fitness, his suitability for the work is not found in himself. It doesn't come from within. In fact, he doubles down on that. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. He says it twice. He repeats it for the sake of emphasis. And that's the first lesson. The basis for his adequacy, the basis for his fitness, his suitability is not in himself. It doesn't come from within. The second lesson goes right along with that and points us to the source of the adequacy, namely God. Our adequacy, our fitness, our sufficiency comes from him. It doesn't come from within. It comes from the outside. It comes from him, which is the best news ever, right? Like if it was from us, if our fitness, our strength, our adequacy was from us, then that's finite. It's limited. It's a shallow well from which we would draw, and it gets empty really, really quick. But if the source of our adequacy, the source of our fitness, the source of our strength is from God, well, that's a well that never runs dry, right? We never come to the end of that fitness. We never come to the end of that adequacy. I got an email this week from a worker in South Asia, an IMB missionary, uh, who just landed in their country 15 days ago. And she was talking about the trouble that they had faced already in landing in this new place of work. In fact, the subject line of the email was, we hit the ground running and the ground hit back. She talked about sickness with a toddler on the way, not even, not even getting to their country of service, but like on the way. They had a layover in a city toddler was really sick they ended up having to go to the hospital like leave the airport and go to the hospital before they even landed in their country she talked about uh, an apartment in a good neighborhood close to other workers where the kitchen floods every night she talked about angry neighbors who throw rocks through the windows of a local church she talked about how they they got their western coffee maker out and plugged it in and made half a pot of coffee before the electricity fl- fried their uh, coffee maker. And then she said the most profound thing. After talking about all this trouble they have faced, she said the most profound thing. I think it to be on the screen. She said, but the Lord is certainly doing something in us. Every time we say, this is all I've got, please don't ask for more. Stop right there. Every time we say, this is all I've got, Lord, please don't ask for more. He does. He does ask for more in kindness, she says, and with our good and his glory in mind, it's a humbling and a stretching that we are learning how to welcome rather than resist. Do you see how this connects? Like if it's our fitness, if it's our strength, if it's our adequacy, that's a well that easily runs dry. I don't have anything left, Lord. Don't ask for anything more. And he does. Why? Why? to show that the adequacy is not from ourselves, but from him. The strength is not from ourselves, but from him. This is something we should lean into, not fight against. Because when we are weak, he is strong. His power is perfected in our weakness. Ligon Duncan, uh, in, a, in a great sermon that, that is really, um, man, one that I go back to all the time, he, he says to things like this, it's just like you, Lord. It's just like you, Lord, to get our well completely dry and then ask for more just like you, Lord, to do something like that, to show your strength, your power, to show that it's not anything from us. It's not from ourselves. It's not from something within. It's from without. And these principles that were true in Paul's life are true in our lives also. We are not adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. and He likes it that way. He seems to really like it that way because that way he gets all the glory. There was a traveling preacher that was pretty famous for a season named Vance Havner. Some of you may be familiar with that name. And right at the beginning of his ministry, as he just started to launch out into a traveling ministry where he was going to be in a different place every week, preaching to a different group of people all the time, totally dependent upon the goodwill and generosity of the people he would preach to for his subsistence, he said this at the beginning of his ministry. If ever there was a chance to prove that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and that when we are weak, he is strong, that was it. The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. And it's an unbeatable combination. That's pretty good, right? The Lord has the strength and I have the weakness. And so we teamed up. An unbeatable combination. In my weakness, his strength shines through. Oswald Chambers, some of uh, you probably read his work on a daily basis. My utmost for his highest is a super famous devotional. He said this. God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him is made possible by the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Don't you love that? All throughout history, he's used nobodies because they are uniquely positioned to give him the glory. And he only used somebodies when they said, I will not rely on my own strength and my own power, but completely upon you. Hudson Taylor, a groundbreaking missionary, famous missionary, said, God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. So, if you feel a deep sense of your own inadequacy, your own unworthiness, your own inability, your own weakness, if you feel a deep sense of that, Don't hide from service to the Lord in shame. Don't sit on the sidelines in some kind of posture of false humility. I've got nothing to offer. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy that says, you have nothing to offer. Run to the front lines and watch God work through you because you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to offer and that sets the stage for him to do incredible things. Watch him make much of himself as he displays his perfect power in your total weakness you feel that sense of inadequacy don't hide run to the front lines or listen here's another warning if you are full of self-confidence if you are full of arrogance and pride put that to death today if you are relying upon yourself and things that come from yourself put that to death today because if you depend on your own strength and ability you will get only what you can produce and that's not much do you remember that in adult sunday school this morning seems like the, the whole earth living in one little place, all of humanity living in one little place and having all the same language together. And they put their minds together and they say, we will make a name for ourselves. We will be a, build a great tower up to the heavens. And they went to work. And this thing that they built, that they were so proud of, that they made such a name for themselves, God says, I got to go down to even see it i got to go down there to be able to see what they have done by their own strength. It's not impressive, at least not to the Lord. So if you are full of self-confidence and arrogance and pride, put it to death. You'll only get what you can produce. But if you surrender to him and depend upon him, you will see the kind of things that only he can do. And he can do more than you could ever imagine. So I think there are two ways to miss the target here, Right? by this false pride that stays on the sideline saying, I've got nothing to offer or this arrogance that says, the Lord needs me to get it done because I'm so strong and I'm so great. And all of us, all of us are missing the target one way or another most days, right? And sometimes we don't even see where we're missing the target. And so I want to I say that we need each other to help see that. So, so if you see a brother or sister who's like over here on the sidelines who says, oh, I just don't, I don't know, I don't have anything to offer, I've got no gifts, I've got no skills, I've got no talents, I've got nothing to offer, you need to come alongside them and say, you're right. Stop looking at yourself, though, and start looking to him. He can use you. He likes to use folks just like you. Don't, don't build them up. Don't instill in them some kind of self-confidence. They don't need, nobody needs self-confidence. We need God confidence. We need more confidence in him. Not that we are adequate in ourselves as if anything comes from ourselves. Our adequacy is from him. So if you see that brother or sister over there, that's, that's pride in a weird sense. It's false humility that keeps them on the sidelines. Show them the way. And invite them to lean in to God's strength and his power. And if you've got, if you've got a brother who's over there like, ah, it, was, it was all broken until I showed up and fixed all the problems. And what that guy needs is me. And what that guy needs is me. And what the world needs is me. You need to say exactly the same thing. To say, stop looking at yourself so much. And start looking to the Lord. The world doesn't need you. The world needs the Lord. And so we put to death that arrogance we put to death that pride whether it manifests itself in some kind of sitting on the bench or manifests itself by taking all the spotlight we want to recognize that adequacy fitness suitability worth it's not from ourselves it's it's from the lord paul presses it further in verse 6 when he says who made us adequate he made us adequate as servants of a new covenant not of a of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills The Spirit gives life. I told you last week that this new covenant, old covenant contrast is going to be a thing. And here it is again. It's going to be even more of a thing next week as we move on in the text. Here, he is saying that his adequacy from God qualifies him as a servant, as a minister. The word is the root word we get our word deacon from, of a new covenant, right? He has also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, the new covenant that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were pointing to in the passages we looked at last week. A new covenant where one, where lives are actually changed from the inside out, where hearts are transformed by the spirit of the living God. He has made us adequate, adequate as ministers, not of the old covenant of this external thing, but of a new covenant, an internal working of the spirit where lives are radically changed from the inside out. He has made us adequate for that. This new covenant language is not often used in the New Testament. In fact, outside of this passage, it's only used in reference to the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper in in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews. So at the institution of the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant, In my blood, new covenant, my blood, Jesus says, as he holds that cup. One of the few places in the New Testament where that language is used, same language that's used here in 2 Corinthians. And then in Hebrews, oh, man, really, the whole book of Hebrews is about this, right? The the whole letter is about the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant and the superiority of the new covenant. That's part of why uh, Ricky read from chapter 10, but look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 15. It says, for this reason, he, that's Jesus, for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He's the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant that as the text looked at in chapter 10, changes us from the inside out by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a contrast here between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Even in the text in verse 6, he made us adequate as servants of a New Covenant, not of a letter, of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Old Covenant is of the letter. And Paul says here that the letter kills. The New Covenant, though, he says, is of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives life. Life. This is similar language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, when he says, "...therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sinning His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what does he mean here in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the letter? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, merely saying he's referring to the law doesn't seem to be enough because that might lead us to believe that the law is the problem. That, That in the Old Covenant, The law was the problem, and that's not the case. In fact, Paul himself will argue that the law is good. However, if the law is merely letters on a page, apart from the Spirit, then the law, the letter, cannot bring life. It can only bring death, for apart from the Spirit, we will not, indeed we cannot, keep the law, and therefore we stand condemned and in need of a Savior. The letter... Apart from the spirit, the letter, apart from the power of God, the letter, apart from the new covenant and the blood of Jesus, the letter on a page will only kill because you cannot keep it. And you will stand condemned. And you will say, I need a savior. And the savior has come and his name is Jesus. Paul Barnett says it like this. Under the old covenant, the people did not have the spiritual resources to keep the law or any provision for forgiveness once they broke it. In fact, did you catch that when Ricky was talking about that, bulls and goats every year, every year, every year, every year, just a reminder of our sin, never really cleansing, just a reminder, an annual reminder of sin, nor any law for forgiveness when they broke it. The law became a finger of accusation pointed against them until the law had been internalized through the spirit. It remained the letter and an instrument which kills. There's a poem that you've probably heard me quote before. Sometimes it's attributed to John Bunyan. We're not certain about that. But whoever said it said this, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That, that, that was a lot better until Red Bull came along. A lot of you can only think of that right now. So let's leverage that and say Gospel. It gives you wings. It gives you wings to fly. The law says, do this, do this, do this. But it doesn't empower you to do any of it. And you cannot. And so you say, I cannot. I will not. I do not do those things. And you stand condemned. But the gospel brings better news. It says, come on, let's fly. And provides you wings in the person of the spirit. In the empowerment of the Spirit in the new heart of flesh that replaces the heart of stone that he removed, in the writing of the word, the law on your hearts, not merely an external thing anymore, an internal thing, the cleansing that comes from the inside out. The new covenant does that. The gospel does that. The Spirit does that. And he gives life. How does the Spirit give life? How does the Spirit give life in the new covenant? Well, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 10, he does it by a superior sacrifice. Better than bulls and goats, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me remind you what Ricky read in Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have have had a consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins. Year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the old covenant. Sacrifices were made, but they weren't cleansing. They weren't changing. The author of Hebrews goes on, as Ricky read, And then he gets to another contrast in verse 11. He says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, that's Jesus, he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How does the Spirit bring life in the new covenant? He does it by a superior sacrifice. You catch the difference there? Those old covenant priests, they were constantly standing up, constantly offering sacrifices, constantly doing the thing, and it wasn't solving the problem. Jesus came along. And he offered one sacrifice himself, once for all. And when he was done with that one sacrifice, he sat down. He didn't get up the next year and do it again. He didn't get up the next day and do it again as if it was not effective. No, it was effective, and so he sat down. He perfected for all times those who were being sanctified by his own blood. How does the Spirit bring life? He does it by a superior sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. How does the Spirit bring life in the new covenant? He does it by opening our eyes. Opening our eyes to his holiness, to God's holiness, to his justice, to his righteousness. He does it by opening our eyes to our sinfulness. Some of you really need to recall that. Like your conversion story involves being really aware of your sin. Really aware of God's holiness and your sinfulness and the trouble you were in as a result. Like you came to know that you deserved condemnation. You came to know that you deserved hell. Wrath. Because of your sin. And the spirit did that work in you. Like you, you, don't, you don't naturally admit that. You don't naturally weep over that. The spirit does that work. And the spirit also, if you are in Christ, turned your eyes to Jesus taught you that he came to die in your place. That Jesus on the cross was taking your sin upon himself and suffering the wrath of God that you deserve. He was dying as your substitute. The Spirit gives life by opening our eyes to God's holiness and our sinfulness and Christ's sacrificial death in our place. And the Spirit brings life by granting us repentance to turn from that old way, that old way of living, that old way of rejecting Jesus and granting us faith to trust in Christ. That we would rest our whole weight on him. That's the work of the spirit. He opens our eyes and he grants repentance and faith. Paul is saying here that he has been made adequate by God to minister the new covenant which brings life by the spirit. And the people in Corinth have experienced that. To the glory of God, they have experienced that. And listen, you and I, if we are in Christ, we too have been made adequate as ministers of the new covenant, whereby God brings people to life by the Spirit, to the glory of his great name. We have also been made adequate. Paul is not just saying this as as an apostle. Every one of us who are in Christ has been made adequate as ministers of a new covenant whereby God brings life to people by the Spirit. And we sit on it. Paul's like having to defend it, and he's traveling the known world preaching about it and seeing the power of God on display, and he's having to defend it here to the Corinthians. But we have that same adequacy, not from ourselves as anything came from ourselves, but from God. We have that same kind of adequacy as ministers of the new covenant, and yet we sit on it, and we do nothing with it. We do not minister, we do not serve, we do not preach. And so, consequently, we don't get to see the glory of God at work as he brings life to people. Maybe we're hiding behind our inadequacy in false humility. Maybe we're laboring in our own strength. But we're not seeing the glory of God on display as he does the things that only he can do. And so, for application today, we need to remember that our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy is from Him. And we need help to see that. We need the brothers and sisters around us to help us remember that our adequacy is from Him. We need them to help us see that our inadequacy should not keep us from ministry, should not keep us from service. It should keep us humble. It should guard us from pride should point us to his adequacy in our lives to keep us dependent upon the Lord and encouraged by his provision daily. We need each other sometimes to bring us down to say, it's not about you. It's not about you, man. It's about him. Sometimes to bring us up. It's not about you. It's about him. R. Kent Hughes said, God is not looking for gifted people or people who are self-sufficient. He's looking for inadequate people who will give their weaknesses to him and open themselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the transforming grace of the new covenant as it is ministered by Christ Jesus himself. That's us. That's us. He desires to use us to change people's lives as we proclaim him. Our ministry is of the new covenant, whereby the Spirit gives life where there is only death. So what should we do? Number one, preach Christ. We should preach Christ. We should preach about the blood that atones for sins, the superior sacrifice once for all. We should preach about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We should preach about how the new birth and new life come by the Spirit We should invite people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. We should preach Christ. That's number one. Number two, we should pray like crazy. We should ask the Lord to do the things that only he can do in opening people's eyes and ears. We should ask the Lord to change people's hearts, to take out the stone and put in the flesh, to raise people from the dead. We should preach like crazy and we should pray like crazy because he's the one that does the work and we should praise him when he does. That's number three. We should praise him for the great things he has done. We must not take credit for ourselves because we can't raise people from the dead. We must not take credit for ourselves because we can't forgive people of their sins. We must not take credit for ourselves. We can't cause blind people to see. Only he can do that. And so when he does, we praise him. Praise him for the great things he has done. Why? Why would God choose to work this way? Why would God choose to work through a bunch of insufficient, inadequate Weak vessels. Why would he choose to work that way? So that he gets glory, all the glory. And in the process, in the process of him getting the glory, us weaklings, we get all the joy. We get all the joy because he's used us to display his own glory. And so, in just a minute, we're going to sing, To God be the glory, great things he has done. To God be the glory because he has done great things. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, teach us, teach us this today. That we are adequate. Not in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from you. And you have made us servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter But of the Spirit, the litter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Lord, we ask that you would use your word today in the church, our brothers and sisters, to guard us against a a false humility that keeps us on the sidelines as if we have nothing to offer. Guard us against arrogance that thinks we have what the world needs, we have everything to offer. Help us to be dependent upon you and the work that only you can do so that you get the glory for what you do. Know that we're not intended to be on the sidelines. Know that we're not intended to be in the spotlight. You've called us to minister. You've called us to serve. You've called us to preach in your power, by your spirit. We want to. Teach us to preach Christ. Help us to pray like crazy and to praise you for the work that you do. We pray for men and women and boys and girls who stand condemned. pray that your spirit will do what only he can do in opening their eyes to your holiness and their sinfulness. Open their eyes to Christ dying in their place. Grant them repentance and faith to be saved. Lord, do it. Do it for your own name. We pray through Christ. Amen.